Two and a Half Admins, episode 116. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alex. And here we are again. Thank you, Alex, for joining us again. You've been on the show a couple of times before, I think. But if people don't remember, then you are probably best known for this self-hosted podcast at selfhosted.show. Either that or the self-hosted late night live Linux in the park after dark that we did in the summer as well. Yeah, that was uh, good fun. Well, it's great to have you while Alan's off at a conference. Hopefully it won't be too badly missed. Molvad is reporting that Android leaks connectivity check traffic, even if you've turned on user VPN all the time. Kind of defeats the purpose of that button, doesn't it? Yeah, it doesn't really make any sense. Even if you've got always on VPN and block connections without VPN enabled in your system settings, it still leaks a little bit of data. Not loads, but come on, this is a very strange default from Google. Well, the reason that they're doing it, it's about the captive portal detection. And it basically just shows you the differing priorities between you know a virtual private network company and a, a Google that just wants to put devices in the hands of Joe and Jane Sixpack. So the issue here is that when you go to a hotel and you get on the Wi-Fi, with a lot of them these days, you, you have to go through a captive portal, meaning you join the Wi-Fi and the first website that you go to, you don't actually get your website. You get the hotel's terms and conditions, which you have to agree to. And then once you've agreed to that, then they'll unblock your IP address on the Wi-Fi network and allow you out to the outside internet. But until then, they block all of your traffic, which would include any traffic on a VPN tunnel. So I hate saying this. From Google's perspective, what they did actually makes sense because if you're Google and you're responsible for basically everybody's experience on Android, you're going to make millions more people unhappy when they have difficulty getting on the hotel Wi-Fi than the number of people who are unhappy because the probes to find out if you're on a captive portal went out outside the tunnel. So that's basically the decision that they made. And now it kind of boils down to somebody has to convince Google to care enough to find a way to put it in the interface and not discombobulate Joe and Jane's six-pack that just want to get on the Wi-Fi, but also not piss off the privacy-focused people who are like, hey, I checked and I see data is leaking and I'm pissed off about it. I think this could be really easily resolved with perhaps a developer options setting in Android that says, do not do this, do not do these connectivity checks. I think that would resolve the issue because there's... If you look in the linked article in the show notes, there is an issue tracker that Mulvad opened with Google itself. And the status of this, air quotes, bug is won't fix parentheses intended behavior. And then they proceed to list a whole bunch of reasons as to why, you know, it's it's working as intended. One of the most important of which is that we do not think such an option would be understandable by most users. Now, having walked several generations of my family through connecting iPads and all sorts of other devices to the internet, I I think I tend to agree that anything that gets in the way of the golden path and of things just working adds more friction should probably be avoided. But I wonder about this. Could we not improve the captive portal situation? Could we not just have a universal, you know, like example.com kind of reserved domain name that would automatically be hard-coded in every device to always go to a known good captive portal style thing. Would that not work as well? I mean, it's outside of the scope of this, clearly, but, you know, as an idea for the, the wider world. 
I think the only response I can really give you is I'm not sure how we could make the captive portal situation worse than it already is. <laughs> as far as the friction with, uh, you know, random users, I understand Google's position, but I think it's incredibly lazy because I think there is a perfectly good way to solve this. First, you don't have the, you know, block everything that isn't on the VPN setting on by default. You make it something that you have to go enable, which I believe is already the case. But then second, you literally just add a, a blurb of text right then may interfere with connecting to Wi-Fi. That is sufficient. The user who goes and sees that and sees that it says may interfere with connecting to Wi-Fi and then can't get the Wi-Fi to work they were going to call you with something stupid one way or the other. You you cannot prevent yourself <laughs> from receiving their support call, no matter what you do. So <laughs> in my opinion, that would be more than sufficient to make both camps as happy as they're going to get. Sadly, I think, you're, I think you're right with that. So before we close up on this, I would like to point out that the Google engineers on that thread, their suggested solution for Molvad, if your users care about this, was to uh, use a custom ROM image and actually run ADB commands <laughs> to change the global captive portal mode on or off. Like that was the Google engineer's suggested solution. It's okay, Jim. They don't require root, these ADB commands. So it's totally cool. Totally super cool. <laughs> yeah, you don't need a custom ROM and ADB commands. I think it's either or. Because I think it's Graphene OS that has the expected behavior out of the box, or you can just connect it to a PC and run some ADB commands, which for me wouldn't be an issue, but that's not going to help the average person that we're talking about here. To be clear again, let me read the last line of this particular entry from, from Google replying. If Molved considers this a significant enough leak, one possibility is the app could check the value of the global settings capture portal mode and capture portal detection enabled, the deprecated option, and politely notify the user about this, maybe directing them to information in the impact and how to change it or something to that effect. And the directing the user to how to change it is that's the ADB commands that we were talking about. <laughs> That doesn't sound quite as catchy and headline, though, as Android leaks VPN data, though, does it? <laughs> Android demands that all users drop to the shell and issue ADB commands is a pretty good headline. Little lengthy, but <laughs> I feel like the impact is real. Meta's new headset will track your eyes for targeted ads. Of course it will. <laughs> as if the whole Metaverse thing wasn't bad enough. Is this where we insert the Mean Girls gif of stop trying to make VR happen? It's not going to happen. Well, it's interesting you say that because Jim is the perfect person to talk to about this. I think it's more a case of stop trying to make the metaverse happen. Mm. Yes. But VR has its place, but it's not the metaverse. VR absolutely has its place. I mean, VR is already happening. It's going to continue to happen. There's room for a lot of growth there. There may even at some point be room for something along the lines of what Facebook is envisioning for the metaverse. I don't know that it's going to achieve the scale that they're aiming for, but I can see the appeal to a VR environment conferencing solution. The problem is that I don't think meta are going to be the ones to bring it about because there's just too much clueless, what appears to me to be very top-down forcible management of that project and it just results in the most completely soulless and unnerving product i've seen in, in quite some time now i will be the first to admit i i have not experienced the metaverse inside a vr headset 
but I've seen plenty of screenshots and video clips, and honestly, I feel like it would be worse in the headset. You look at these environments, and you've got, like, lovingly rendered, beautifully detailed, well-lit, sweeping spaces with, like, gleaming geodesic domes overhead and sunlight filtering down and beautiful real estate outside, and then a bunch of freaking habos, like, stumbling around inside with no legs because they didn't want to draw feet. Everybody has seen the picture of Mark Zuckerberg's personal habo, I mean avatar or meta or whatever you want to call it, and it actually somehow manages to look more inhuman and creepy than Mark Zuckerberg himself does. And again, like that's an accomplishment, (laughs) but the entirety of the human part of the metaverse basically looks like that. And I think that set of priorities, when you've got these incredibly lovingly rendered environments and these terrible little stumbling footless dolls wandering around that kind of tells you what you need to know about the priorities of the the team developing this. Well, this headset, the MetaQuest Pro, the idea is that it's going to track your face so that you can emote or so that your avatar or whatever you want to call it can emote so that you're not just this blank face. You can smile, you can frown and all the rest of it. And so obviously if they're scanning your face, they're going to be collecting that data and potentially using it to sell ads to you and who knows what else. Yeah, that's a good point. I got pretty far afield. We're, we're really supposed to be talking about the headset, you know, tracking your eyes. So this is kind of the wet dream of a web advertiser, right? Probably most of our listeners are already aware that all of the big websites out there, they're not just tracking like where you go and what renders on your screen, They know all the places that your mouse hovers. They know, you know, what you've had your mouse over, how long you had it there, what you clicked on, usually how long it took you before you started typing something in a text box if there is one. And they feed this information into models and they figure out like, okay, which are the parts of the site that people are engaged with, that they're interacting with, that they're, you know, more potentially interested in. But this idea with the headset and the internal facing camera would allow... Facebook, and I'm just going to go ahead and call them Facebook. Meta's not fooling anybody. (laughs) It it allows Facebook to actually know what you look at and how long you look at it. And that is some really disturbing level of detail. I mean, if Facebook doesn't disturb you already, then uh, maybe the metaverse is for you. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this. There couldn't be a worse company to do this, to create what they want to create here, the metaverse. Facebook is just such a train wreck in terms of privacy and what it's done to democracy. And I I just literally cannot think of a worse company or a worse person. Well, give Elon six months and maybe Twitter will be there. Yeah, Elon Musk is is probably up there. But I don't know, his track record has been less about that and more about just wild hairs. So far. If what we're stumbling towards here is like, you know, the the rank of crappy billionaires in order, I think I prefer Musk to Zuckerberg, man. I think just about, yeah. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. 
Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. Deepfake Audio has a tell. Researchers use fluid dynamics to spot artificial imposter voices. This is from theconversation.com. And this is really fascinating to me because with deepfaked videos, there's kind of that uncanny valley you can pretty much see. And with deepfake audio as well, you, you can mostly tell. But if it's only a short clip, then it's not that obvious if it's done well. But what the researchers have done here is isolate sounds that sound human, but couldn't have actually come from a human's vocal cords. What the researchers are doing is they're modeling the actual physical properties of human vocal cords and then isolating sounds which could not have been produced by actual vocal cords in the real world, no matter how human they might sound to the ear. This is much like the difference between listening for bad audio, if you happen to be a podcast engineer, hi Joe, uh, versus looking at the waveform on an oscilloscope and saying, hey, I see a nasty little you know, sawtooth wave in there. Did I maybe get some 60 cycle in here or something? Different types of artifacts are easier to detect one way or the other. Now, what they don't really say in that article, which I feel like was not the best reporting or not the best ethics, is that... Because they're training a machine learning model to detect sounds that couldn't have been produced by vocal cords, the obvious implication is you can retrain the the GANs, the generative adversarial networks that are producing the deepfaked audio, to just make sure that they're not littering artifacts in the audio that can't be detected that way. So this is an arms race, and it's very early days, and it doesn't look like it's going to take a big jump for the attackers to get back where they need to be. Scary when you frame it like that. Asimov would have had a field day with that kind of uh, supposition, huh? Absolutely. There's an example on the page of a uh, deep fake, both audio and video, that was generated by a model that trained on Morgan Freeman. And I find it very uncanny valley. If you didn't know who Morgan Freeman was, you would probably get through several minutes of that video clip and very likely not realize that something was off. But if you know Morgan Freeman well, you know, from seeing him in movies and TV shows and whatever, the voice isn't quite right. I don't think the voice ever really gets Uncanny Valley for human, but it definitely isn't quite where it needs to be for Morgan Freeman. And the video, again, as deep fakes go, it's quite good. And if you're not paying attention, you could miss it. But if you're actually looking at this video and you're in any way thinking this might not be real... I don't want you watching my kids if you can't figure it out. Put it that way. (laughs) Well, I've heard impressions of Morgan Freeman that are way better than this. To be fair, sometimes what we interpret as really good impressions aren't actually really good impressions. They're really good caricatures. They pick up on all of the tells for that particular person. Hmm. And in many cases, even enhance those tells to the point where a dispassionate, careful analysis would immediately take that really good impression and say, well, that's obviously not the original person because, you know, it's the audio equivalent of those sketches that the guy down on the beach does on the boardwalk, you know, where you and your girlfriend have the gigantic head and the big toothy smile. (laughs) It's a caricature. 
I think in the movie industry, there are some parallels here too. So if you listen to an actor who's doing an accent, you know, a British guy trying to do an American accent, for example, is quite common in Hollywood. Everything's fine typically until you get to certain syllables or they change their volume. And, and often when people start shouting, they revert back to their native accent. And so I think there's, we're quite good at picking up those micro details as humans in not only the auditory information that we're processing and receiving, we pick up on visual cues as well. And obviously with this, there are no visual cues. And so it's almost like the blind man being more responsive and more receptive to certain stimuli because they are kind of blinded. So you're, you're listening for very specific artifacts to say, Oh, well, that's not really Morgan Freeman. But yeah, I do wonder how long it's going to be until, I don't know, an episode like this. We just send our script into you, Joe, and you can just deep fake us. That'd be nice. I think an episode of this length is going to be an awfully long time, but just enough to do a bit of social engineering to get someone to give you a two-factor code or something. I think we're basically there. Which, to be clear, that's that's already happened in the real world. Attacks have already succeeded using audio deepfakes to get the victim on the other end to do something posing as their boss. Yeah. And so are we going to have to have some sort of real-time scanning to detect whether it is a deepfake or not? And I suppose the question then is, where are we in this arms race? Because just publishing this article has contributed to the arms race, hasn't it? Like you said, Jim. Yeah. It means that people are going to be training their AI systems to not do this. Absolutely. You know, as as far as the state of things right now, yeah, it would absolutely be possible to have a real-time analysis. I think that will get more difficult. And more importantly, no, I don't think that's necessary. In fact, I think it might be an issue if somebody has one of those and is relying on it. Because, again, you don't really need deep-faked audio for, for this to be useful in a social engineering attack. Plenty of social engineering attacks have worked just fine from just some random human calling the person and just sounding confident and, you know, saying, oh, you know, I am your boss or, you know, hey, your boss asked me to call and blah, blah. Mm. And if you're not following proper security procedures, then you get owned. And that's also going to be the case with deep fakes. I don't see how that really changes anything. You have to have proper security procedures in place for how you properly authenticate yourself as somebody who is entitled to the thing that you're requesting. And if your people aren't following those protocols, then you're going to get owned. Having a deep fake scanner just makes it more likely that somebody will know that you have a deep fake scanner and either have better deep faked audio than you're prepared for or just not bother using it. <laughs> Do you think there'd be a situation where, like in the early days of antivirus, because I have the protection there in my mind, I'm less careful for a while? That is absolutely something that concerns me about the idea of somebody just hooking up, you know, a, a deep fake detector to a phone line. And if it says not a deep fake, then, oh, sweet, I'm good to go. Well, mm. you, you still don't know that's not just some 15 year old on the other end of the cell phone, <laughs> you know, like Palantir all over again. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. 
and check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to leno.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's leno.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Cameron writes, I tried to keep my home lab small and cheap. If I have gear, I'll find some way to use that first. I have an old Synology NAS and a Lenovo P50 that I use for my lab. I also have some ThinkCenter M700 Tinies that I play with. I got to thinking, I have a Razor Core X eGPU enclosure I used to use, but now it sits around. Why not pair that with the P50 and run ZFS with an add-in SATA card? Either roll my own or use TrueNAS. But why shouldn't I do that? What about Thunderbolt and a SATA PCI card is bad? I'm sure you guys, in your infinite wisdom, have some advice. So there's nothing wrong with a uh, a PCIe SATA controller. That's perfectly fine. I think that's a great plan. If you can fit enough drives into that teeny tiny little think center, then yeah, by all means, put in a SATA controller, hook up your drives, have a great day. But when it comes to Thunderbolt, I do have some concerns. I definitely do not recommend that people use Thunderbolt or USB for permanently connected storage that you rely on. It's fine for something that you plug in for long enough to get what you need and then unplug it and you really need it portable to move it between machines. But for permanent storage, that USB or Thunderbolt link, it tends to be a lot less reliable over the long term than proper SATA or SAS or NVMe or what have you. It's just an observed fact that, you know, over many, many years of helping a lot of people with storage, you see tremendously higher numbers of people panicking because they've got corrupt volumes that were on the other end of a USB cable. I agree with you, Jim. You know, my my personal philosophy is that if I can't connect it through a SAS or a SATA port directly in the same chassis, typically, then, you know, long term, I'm not willing to hang storage off of a USB bus or a Thunderbolt cable. I mean, just as an example, I'm recording on a Thunderbolt enabled laptop right now, which is lovely because this laptop needs to be portable and I connect into my Thunderbolt dock and it's got my interface and my monitors and all the, you know, 20 cables that I would have to connect to this laptop individually through a single cable. That's magic and I love it. But for what sounds like a server scenario, you don't need that. You, you're trying to set it and forget it and never touch it is the, the ultimate goal, really. And uh, I worry that, you know, let's say your cat knocks the Thunderbolt cable one too many times and it just blips for a split second and then ZFS decides that it's going to mark that driver's uh, unhealthy and you've got to do a resilver and it's a whole bunch of risk and all that kind of stuff becomes an issue. Keep in mind too, it's not just an issue of maybe the cat will knock a cable loose because we're not just talking about data. We're not just talking about the difference between data flowing over a SATA or SAS cable or data flowing over a USB cable. We're also talking about power. Mm. So the power that your drives are consuming are either going to be coming over a USB or Thunderbolt cable, which is you know far less robust than being directly connected to the machine's power supply, 
Or in some cases, maybe you've got an external wall wart power supply, you know, for a little enclosure and you plug that in. But, you know, again, now you're talking about some cheap little dodgy $4 thing versus the power supply that, you know, even the tiny one in like a Think Center like you've got, that's like a $50, $60 part. It's well-designed kit. Yeah. Whereas whatever is powering your USB drive, whether it be over the USB cable coming from the USB controller on the machine or whether it just be the wall work plugged into the wall, it's no more than they had to spend to get the job done. I actually had a, a PCIe eGPU enclosure for a little while, and it's basically a mini computer. It's got a little motherboard, a little dedicated power supply in there. There's a couple of SATA-looking cables, a couple of Molexes, that kind of thing. I just felt it was really janky, even no matter how well made the enclosure was, you know, out of solid aluminium and machined beautifully. You look inside and you go, that's a really cheaply made computer. So what my suggestion would be at this point would be look at something like the Odroid H3, which is a really small built-in CPU dedicated with a couple of SATA port little system. You know, you could sell your P50 or the eGPU dock and buy this thing because it's only $130 add a bit of RAM, add an NVMe drive, and you'll be good to go for years. Yeah, absolutely agreed. I had misunderstood the question. I thought we were talking about a proper add-in SATA card going into the Think Center rather than plugging a SATA card into the eGPU enclosure to go into the laptop. And I do not like that idea. I do not like it at all. (laughs) How many levels of jank do you want your storage solution to have? Zero is the correct answer. (laughs) I think it was starting to sound more like how many janky layers can we involve in our storage solution? (laughs) And I feel like we could get a little deeper, but we certainly shouldn't. (laughs) Well, maybe if we passed through that uh, SATA controller to a VM as a PCI pass-through, that would be a little more janky. (laughs) That would, that would. But I think we're going to need nested virtualization there, not just one VM. Yep. And then we'll put Libva in Docker (laughs) and run virtual machines in Docker. How about that? Pass those through. (laughs) Now, the question is, do we pass through the controller to the first VM and then the second VM just uses it the way that VMs normally do? Or do we do a double pass through? Do we pass through to the first VM, which passes through to the second VM? Which hosts a VM that actually runs the client software? In a container. (laughs) (laughs) Dear listener, please do not do this. This is a horrible, horrible, horrible idea. Okay, Gary says, with reference to your discussion of encryption on computers and phones, my phone is encrypted, but I unlock it with a short pin. My Ubuntu laptop is set up with whole drive encryption, but is unlocked with a short password. So even though the encryption may be 128-bit grade or similar, if I boot my laptop to a live USB disk and browse the internal hard drive, I only need to input my short-ish password to get access to the files. If the pin on my phone that unlocks it is only four digits long, then surely it is only 10,000 permutations away from a breach, despite the high-grade encryption. Also, I know you can choose to use a short pin to unlock a Windows computer. Security is only as good as the weakest link. How can my data be secure if I lose it, throw it away, or recycle it? What am I not understanding here? Well, Gary, thankfully we can help. The thing that you're not understanding is that your pin is not actually the key that unlocks that encrypted drive. The pin unlocks the key that in turn can be used to unlock the drive. 
So when you factory reset a system that has encrypted storage, what you're actually doing is not so much throwing away your pen, you're deleting the copy of the actual encryption key that lives on the drive. So like I said, your pen unlocks the key, which then unlocks the drive. So as long as the whole thing is intact, you're correct. If you've got a four-digit pen, there are only 10,000 permutations available. If there's not some kind of a hardware-enforced cooldown between guesses, you're going to be owned in literally a second from you know an automated attack. And that's actually the way USB rubber ducky attacks worked on iPhones at first, because the iPhone had a four-digit pen, and if you plugged in a USB rubber ducky, it would pretend to be a keyboard, and it would just type all 10,000 possible pens really quick, and you would be in any iPhone in seconds. But again, given that this question was specifically about how you can recycle machines, how you can recycle phones, and how that immediate factory reset works, that's the key. Because you delete the actual secret used to encrypt it, immediately, no matter how weak your pen was, it no longer matters because there's nothing for your pen to unlock. The actual complex key is gone, and it's no longer possible to decrypt the data on the drive. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email address if you want to send any questions. Thanks for joining us, Alex. It's been great. Thank you for having me. This, uh, this seat, Alan, left it nice and, nice and warm for me. Well, hopefully you can keep it warm until next week when you'll be back with us. But until then, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Rissington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Ironic Badger. We'll see you next week.